Mandy Yakich from Creative Matters, and you're listening to Creative Matters On Air, where I have conversations with new and established artists from around New Zealand. I love to listen to artists' stories and learn about their creative process, and maybe you do too, which is why I've made this podcast, to inspire, inform and educate. I hope you can take away something positive and encouraging from each of these amazing stories to help you on your own creative journey. Hello and welcome to Creative Matters. Today I'm speaking with Gay Webster. Gay is a multidisciplinary artist from Auckland in Aotearoa. She works in paint, print, paper, fibre, glass, sculpture and contemporary jewellery from her studio in Pukekohe. Gay's works are all a narration of her views and responses to life. The telling of the story is the focus across all the mediums that she likes to create in, and all of her disciplines connect and relate to each other. I talked to Gay in her studio about her incredibly varied practice and all the different media and processes she uses. She speaks of her joy of teaching four days a week from her studio, her desire to keep her work accessible, her views on the languages of her different disciplines and how they speak to each other, the strong connection she has to the Hauraki Gulf, curating her own exhibitions and her love of learning and developing her creative skills. You can see images of her amazing painting, sculpture and fibre work on our blog at creativematters.co.nz and on her website gaywebster.com. Hi Gay. Hi, Mandy. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me at your beautiful home. Ah, my pleasure, Mandy. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. And it's, uh, yeah, we're sitting here in your studio, which is amazing. I'm very, I shouldn't say jealous, but inspired by this lovely space you have. And um, thank you too for showing me around your beautiful home with all your amazing work inside. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a great way to view your work and um, also the work of other artists that you love and are inspired by. Yeah, you know, it's a lovely thing to surround yourself, isn't it, with real things, real art and work done by real people. And, you know, there's that wonderful quote, isn't it, you shouldn't have anything that isn't functional and beautiful. That function can be all of those things. So, you know, our homes should reflect us. Mm, so. Yeah, absolutely. And you are a very clever curator. I think the way you've organised all of that work in your home is, is really stunning. It's like a gallery in itself, I'd say. I think that probably comes from curating my own shows a lot. You know, um, I think it's very important, the curation of artwork, and that everything does talk and doesn't shout out and drown out other pieces. So uh, it, it, pro- that's probably come from that, from mm. having to do shows and yeah. creating them myself. So. And you can see that. And you've sort of allowed space around your your pieces, but they also kind of talk to each other, which is yes, nice. across the room. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very cool. Okay, so um, welcome to Creative Matters. <laughs> so good to have you on the podcast. And um, can we just go back to your childhood and if you could just tell us a few things about um, where you were born and how you discovered your creativity. Right. Um, I'm an Auckland girl and I like to say that um, I have had a brief sojourn in the South Island but, you know, the Hauraki Gulf called back um, so we came back home and had a quiet childhood, not an easy childhood um, and certainly no 
art influence as far as traditional visual arts. I had certainly had influence from my mother um, with poetry and language, and she was very amazing with um, music and with strangely flower arranging, but she was doing things back then that's only just been done now. So I think that there was influence in that way, but there was not disposable income to have art, and I don't think there was availability of art as we have now. You know, growing up, unless you were in an art community, you didn't really get exposed to what I call real art, which is the ordinary person painting and doing things. Mm. And anything above that was certainly not affordable. Mm. So I don't think we had one painting in our house. Isn't so that amazing? That, quite strange. Yeah, and you've yeah. definitely made up for that now. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why I'm kind of <laughs> yeah, exactly. work across that so much. Yeah. Um, but it was a good good child. My mother was wonderful. So um, mm. I was very fortunate with that. Mm. We won't say anything at all about my father, but my mother was wonderful. Right. So. Moving on. So, um, you know, you have an incredibly um, varied art practice and, and process, Gay. Um, so it would be really interesting to know sort of when you got started with your art making and, and how that all happened. I think I did have a definitive moment for painting. But I don't think I had a definitive moment for creating. So I think that that's all just kind of part of it, isn't it? You know, mm. I can't, I think I was always making and fiddling around and doing things. Um, and certainly experimented with a lot of things. And, and probably the earliest things I experimented with, with was fibre. I loved fibre. I've always loved fibre. So I avoided painting for a long time because... It was a dream to paint. I really wanted to do it, but was very scared that if I started and it was rubbish, then, you know, I've lost a, a dream that's very nice to hold on to. And I think probably um, a lot of artists would admit that. And I think that happens more than once in our lifetime. You know, every artist has that moment of, of that painting that I've just done. Oh, my God, is it the last one? I might not have any left, you know. Mm. <laughs> and then you're faced with another canvas and you're kind of like, <gasps> What if that was the last one, you know, the one before? Um, so I put it off, the painting, until I was fortunate enough to have a lovely mentor who um, used quite colourful language to tell me to just stop mucking around um, and get on with it and just do it. And so I took a leap of faith and did, and then, oh, magic happens. Really? You know, it's how, how do you describe to somebody that that moment of, paint under your hand for the first time mm. and moving it around and colour, mm. you know, it's, yeah. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? And so um, how old were you when you actually discovered that or sort of started painting? In my early 20s. Right. Mm. And, and did you, were you kind of thinking of yourself at that time as an artist or somebody who was going to be an artist or, um, you know, how were you viewing your practice at that time? Certainly never thought of myself as being an artist or going to be an artist. I just had to do it. And and quite early on realised I had to do a lot of things, not just painting. I had to do the jewellery. I had to do the fibre. I had to do anything. You know, I just constantly would be see things and it's like, I've got to give that a go, you know. And I think that's wonderful now. I think, you know, now we have YouTube. Oh, and people all around the world share 
you know, how, how amazing. You know, back then you had to go to the library and find a book and the book would be curated by somebody who thought this is what it should be like, you know, whereas now you can look at all sorts of things and we're not constrained by editing, mm, you know. Yeah. And I find that very exciting and and wonderful because I think people are amazing the way they do share. Mm. So I'm quite passionate about sharing because of that. Um, but going back to your question, I I think I think it was just a case of cracking on and doing and not thinking too much about what that meant. Was there a label that went with it? Mm. I did have a definitive moment where. Um, MIT did offer that I could do a short course with them to get a degree uh, because they would credit so much of what I was doing already. And I did make a conscious decision not to because I decided that uh, certainly even for a year I would have to do what other people told me to do and I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. Plus I decided fairly early on that uh, I didn't need that validation of having something after my name. I just needed to get on and do it. Mm. And if it worked, it worked. And it didn't have to work for other people. It just had to work for me. Mm. So at that point, you that was sort of alongside your career and your and your job. So it wasn't. It was like a sort of part time interest to begin with. Oh yes. Yes, yeah. and I, I think in all honesty, if you're in New Zealand, then most artists will have to work like that. To, to make a full-time living from art is not ever going to be an easy process just because of sheer population, mm. you know, mm. there's, not an, there's buyers and, you know. Mm. And I think New Zealanders, you know, we're a little bit conservative with that too. So, you know, for a lot of people to buy art is quite a scary moment, mm. so... You yeah. know, and I, I've said to you a few times that I've got this passion for real art for real people. So um, that means that I do try to keep all my work affordable and so that genuine people can have it. And, you know, I've had amazing experiences from that where, you know, being in a show and having somebody see work and absolutely love it and, you know, young mum, babies in tow, no disposable income for something like that. And feeling that the person was very moved by the work. So I gave it to him. And this girl was like, no, no, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I said, yeah, I can. I said, you know, it's it's important that I do this and, and, you know, I want to do this. Take it. You know, it's about real art for real people. And I think about nine or ten years later, her coming up to me and she had put away money and saved up, and which was not easy with mm. a young family. And she came to me and she had the purchase price of the painting and wanted to give me the money. And it had meant so much to her. And she said to me, she said, there's not a day when I don't look at the work and just feel wonderful. Oh, you know, there's no better price than that, surely. Mm. So um, I said to her no, that I wouldn't take the money, but that she could take the money and then go and buy another piece of work. By a New Zealand artist, I said, buy, you know, buy another piece, start a collection, mm. you know, put it towards. That's such a beautiful um, thing to and do. And that's what she did. How amazing. Great, yeah, know? and she will never forget that, you know. I know, it'll always mean something. And, yeah. And, you know, it started somebody learning that they can do it and that just putting a little bit aside might mean that you do have real art mm. on your wall that you can mm. relate to. And mm. how special to sort of bring something into her life that gives her so much joy. It's quite humbling. Yeah. I find that part of the art part of it very humbling mm. because you know that we do something I, I mean I do it because I love it you know and then somebody else comes along and loves it and it's you know I haven't got over after all these years I still haven't got over the wonder of that 
that mm. somebody else likes what you're doing yeah. and relates to it. It's, it's very sort of validating yeah. too, isn't it? Yeah, so your multidisciplinary practice, you know, is like multi-plus to me. You have your sort of sculpture and your jewellery, which you see as part of your sculptural yeah. practice. Yeah. Um, you have all your fibre and fabric works. Um, you have your painting. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just incredibly extensive and it seems like sort of six artists' work almost, but then you can see the beautiful connections between the different parts of your practice. Yeah. So how would you describe your practice overall? Um, look, for a long time, Andy, I, I, I really felt that I was perhaps not doing the right thing, that it was jack of all trades and master of none. And, you know, that's some of us, our upbringing that we think like that. And I did, after a number of years, accept that that was okay. And in actual fact, everything that I do is connected. And despite accepting that and allowing that with myself. It was really only till about 12 years ago that I really accepted that everything is totally connected what I do. So it's just how I, the artist language that I talk. So I, I, you know, I've said to you that I think that art is just a conversation between the artist and the viewer and that sometimes the conversation is political and sometimes it's not pleasant. Sometimes it can be social, which is all really important. And sometimes it's just about being beautiful and having quiet spaces and being enriched by it. And that sometimes we use different language to have that conversation. So just as a book could be translated into French or German or Russian or English, Chinese, you know, the the disciplines are just another language for me. So if I'm working in paint, I'm, maybe I'm working in a French language. And if I'm working in jewellery, maybe I'm working in a Japanese language. It's just different ways for me to say the same thing. Mm, which is such just a great way ways. of looking at it, isn't it? It's a different way of communicating. Yeah, yeah. And and I have to do that. That's who I am as an artist. You know, I really admire people who, who are very focused and have one language that they speak in. I, I just can't. I, if I try, it'll pop out somewhere, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. And so I just learned to accept that that's how it is and that it's all okay. Mm. That's you how know. you work and yeah. that's what's within you. Yeah. And, I, and really, in the end, we only have to hopefully please ourselves. Mm. Um, and the joy is when others like it too. So yeah. yeah, and you can see that you get so much joy yourself from what I you do. do. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm feel very privileged to be able to do it. You know, I have friends who who don't do anything creative, and I, 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 I just don't know. How, I couldn't be like that. I just can't. Mm. You know. Yeah. And so I'm quite comfortable with being a mad artist. I think that hat fits me very well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> in, all, in all the best ways, I'd say. And so how do you actually um, work out sort of what you're working on or do you have lots of projects on the go in those different disciplines or how do you figure it out? Yes, I can often have a lot of projects going on in different disciplines. I, part of that with jewellery you have to. The process of making jewellery, it would be most unusual to work on one piece from beginning to end because some of the processes have to sit for a while. They might have to sit in acid or they, you know, they need to be polished and so you, are you going to polish one or you polish ten you know and I'm quite efficient I, I'm time hungry so I work quite efficiently so I learned certainly with the jewellery that you always have more than one project on the go I'm inclined to set myself a theme 
So there'll be something that I'm interested in. I'll start to do some research about it and what fascinates me about it. And then it'll be how I explore that. What language am I going to use? So, you know, sometimes it'll be paint, sometimes it'll be fibre, sometimes both. And sometimes then it will feed back into what if I wanted to make this in metal? Because I love working with metal. You know, you couldn't couldn't be more different, could it? You mm, know, metal amazing. to fibre, yeah. you know, it's and yet it's so the same in some ways. You know, it's all about how you manipulate it. And, um, and there is just something truly wonderful about bashing the snot out of something and setting something on fire and then putting it in acid. It's <laughs> lovely, you know. <laughs> it's really cool, you know. <laughs> So, and then, you know, but on the other hand, you know, picking up something else that you're stabbing with the needle, it's just all quite delicious. Mm. So usually I've got an idea. There's something I'm playing with. Um, it, I don't like to skyrocket. I don't like to just do one thing and then shoot off to something else. Or it, it'll be an idea. Mm. And often that's based around language. I I love poetry. I love song lyrics. There'll be something that'll capture my attention, and so I just can't help myself. I start to explore that. Mm, so, which is so great, um, isn't it? So, and uh, most of my paintings are landscape and seascape. I love going somewhere in them. I think my life is very busy and has a lot of hard things to deal with. You know, with um, with illness and with Gordon with accident. So the paintings take me to a quiet place. Mm. So even my landscapes, they're never they how I feel about it. You know, they're not an exact replica of a landscape. I I don't want to do that. And certainly in any of my works, uh, almost never would you see houses or man-made things in there. It's just about the form, the horizontal line, you know, and the beautiful colours and the mm. words that will go with it. So mm. usually words will inspire something or link in there. Mm. And and I do believe in researching a subject too, that when I find something that interests me, I'll start to look about why and what is it about it. And mm. So I've been working on a series about um, the eucalyptus and tree, you know, which is v- very significant to the Indigenous people of Australia and found out through that that that's part of um, our history too, that we had eucalyptus here in New Zealand that we have fossils of. So you know, and that the eucalyptus tree means to them just as the Saputakawa tree does to us. And mm. So, you know, so I start doing the research and things to start to grow from that mm, as well. Which is so great, so, isn't it? Yeah. And you've obviously haven't got a sort of shortage of um, ideas, but is there anything that you find challenging about managing all those different parts of your practice? The business part of it. You know, the creating part of it is I just, you know, I'm I'm a pig in mud with that. I love it. It's, you know, I'm happy and in the happy place. But, you know, there is a business aspect and you have to sometimes put that aside and put a a business hat on that, you know, you've got to sort out titles and names and prices and reproductions and galleries and going to those places. And I think like most artists, I would just love to have, you know, a manager, lovely man who came in and a woman who came in and a woman who came in and did all this, you know, wouldn't that be lovely? Mm. We just did. Yeah. You know, but that's not reality. No, that is a so hard part for artists. The discipline it? of those things mm. can be hard. But yeah. there is also, you know, uh, being uh, going through school, you know, my mother was very conscious because of her situation of having, you know, um, her partner leave her and have no income, no benefits back then, that women have to be able to do something that will bring the money. So she was quite practical for me in that sense. So that comes back on the 
secretarial side of things, mm, you know, yeah. that you'd learn to um, manage that part of it. Mm. But it's not the part that I overly love. No, so. that's a tricky part, isn't it? It's often challenging. Oh, and pricing. Yeah. You know, doesn't every artist hate pricing? Yeah, that's yeah. a tricky one. Just going into the different aspects of your of your art practice, um, can we start with the jewellery? Yes, absolutely. So your jewellery, I'm just looking at it now. It's absolutely incredible. I completely love it. It is very, um, like your practice, I guess, it's quite varied. It's not like you're sort of creating the same no, types of things. No, I don't. No. no. So how do you come up with the ideas? Um, sometimes it's a response to um, a request or a demand, you know. I do do, well, and have done commissioned jewellery, um, engagement rings and things, which is quite fun to do, but also quite stressful in its own way. Mm. So often it is a response to something or connecting into an idea that I'm doing with the painting or something I'm exploring. And then how am I going to make that conversation? So, for example, the the three rings were for uh, an objective exhibition. And with some of the exhibitions that you're invited into, they give you a theme. And the particular theme was that artists are just people who have ideas inside them and that we just need to get them out and into the community. So I thought a lot about this thing about that we have ideas inside of us and how those start. And so the first ring in the series is germination and um, or seeds of an idea. And the ring has been forged and turned inside out because we have ideas in us and we had to get it out. So I've forged it through and turned it inside out and then trapped the little gold seeds in it. Oh, wow. The second ring is um, the germination. So the seeds are coming out. So again, I've taken a silver ring, turned it inside out on itself by forging and having them come out. And the third one is fruition, which is totally up the top. And it's a gold ring that's forged through and then all these forms that have taken shape and have popped out and are mm. growing. Mm. And it's one of those kind of weird pieces that people look at and kind of go, wow, that's really interesting and it's a bit strange and unusual and it's fun and very wearable. I really like my jewellery to be very wearable. It's got to be comfortable. It's got to be safe. But it can be a little bit out there as well. Mm. Other jewellers look at it and go, how the hang did you do that? You mm. forged that totally through inside out. So it's one of those weird things that a lot of people don't realise the difficulty yeah. in doing that. Yeah. Can you actually but, explain that process, Gay? Yes. So I've taken a flat strip of metal, formed it round into a circle, soldered it into a flat ring, right? So a standard flat ring. And then started to expand the outside edges and start to hammer and form and so that the outside, you've got the ring shaped like this, the outside is then come out and turned back on itself. Oh, right. Now, the excitement in that is, of course, if you don't have good soldering joints, they hammer apart and split. And at any point, if you hammer too much, you've gone one step too far. Mm. <laughs> and percussion maintenance is required, and you bash it, and you have to start again. But these pieces actually flowed really well. Oh, um, they're amazing. And they're fun to do. But then I had the issue, of course, that they've got to be displayed. How do you display them, you know, in a show? So I had to make little silver stands for them that the rings would sit up on. Mm, and those stands mm. are so beautiful. And they, they feel almost magnetic, or is that just a... The no, way the ring just, sits just in the, the way stand. the ring sits in, so it fits. Yeah, so it really good fits. Fit. It kind of yeah, locks clicks in. into place. Yeah, yeah. And they they are such beautiful objects, but also really beautiful Quite on your fingers. Yeah, yeah. they're sculptural. So what? Um, how would you actually? Um, would you sell that as 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 a three piece, or would you sell it individual? 
No, we'd have to go as a we'd three. We'd have to say that, yeah. yeah. Also, there are some things I think that you shouldn't sell. And there are certain works, and that that's not just in jewelry, that's in any of your art practice. Um, that there are just times we just go, no, that needs to stay for family. Mm. That needs to go on. And you, you think know. that's one of those pieces? Yeah, that's one of those pieces. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is one of those pieces. I can imagine. I mean, it's, it's stunning. Yeah. Everything I do is narrative. Everything. So the paintings, the fibre, everything has a title. All my jewellery has titles, has names, and they are all storytelling. So that's probably the most important aspect for me mm. as an artist. Mm. Um, so the the story, you know, often responding to something like that, the, a story comes out of it. The next piece, um, which links really well across to the sculpture, um, I, I took you inside and you had a chance to sit in one of the chairs. Yeah. So... Um, I had an experience with my son where he had a very severe head injury and being told at the time that I was um, aiming for the moon to think that Gordon would be anything but in a vegetative state and that we should just put him in a home and get on with our lives. Well, it's, I don't work like that. It's not how it's going to be for me. Um, and certainly wasn't how it's going to be for Gordon. And a, a couple of weeks later, I found this marvellous quote that said that the night sky climbed down clutching the waning moon in her hand. And it really resonated with me because I thought if if you've climbed down, you've climbed up. Now to climb up you've had to you have to have something. And so the ladders formed and mm. and, and they've stuck with me ever since. Um so that was twenty seven years since Gordon's accident. So yeah, they're still all the time in my work. Yeah. So this idea that of a ladder that you can take the struts of the ladder and you anchor them into and ground them, you know, that might be your family, could for some people it's faith, your creativity, whatever it is that gives you strength. And you dig them in the ground and into those things and you climb up and you grab the moon and you pull it down and your moon is your dreams, you know, and you pull them down and you take them. You don't say no, you don't get put off, you, you fight for it, mm. you know. And so ladders and trees, because they are like that, trees do the same thing, either a ladder from the ground upwards, mm. um, and the moon became significant in what I'm doing. So the chair, when you sit in it, you know, it's got the very high back and it's got a, a copper moon at the top and a fokker for putting your dreams into. And when you sit on it, you put your feet on the rungs of the chair and your feet are separated from your earthly cares. So you get a time where you can contemplate about your dreams and think about how you're going to pull them down. And you're separated from the ground, but you still have this above you. So, mm. you know, it's a strong mm. feeling. It's amazing. And that sitting in that chair myself, it, it had a, it's quite a powerful experience actually. Um, and just the way, because the back is so high, it's sort of almost like it pulls you, pulls you up. from inside yeah. Yeah. up and it's quite sort of elevating almost. It's, it's a really interesting yeah. experience. And that's a really important thing in artwork. So that elevation, when you pull somebody up, you lift their chin up and consequently they'll take a bigger breath and they'll take in more oxygen and they'll feel good. So it's the same with your paintings. I always say to all my students, you know, have a, have a place off the top of your painting that you can breathe out of and that you lift the person, that their eye goes up to that top of the painting because then they'll lift and they'll take in more oxygen and they'll feel good and you'll lift the person. Mm. Equally, if you want to 
have the person lowered, then, you know, if you're very moody across the top of your painting and push down on it, you will push the person down emotionally, you know. So be careful what mm. you're, you're playing with people's yeah, emotions. it's powerful, you know? isn't it? So in the jewellery, this piece is the same thing. So there's the ladder and the fokker at the top and the gold chain and the gold ball to anchor you as you mm. are sailing. And it's a brooch and you wear it over your heart because – you know, you're going for your dreams. It's mm. your heart place. So, yeah. so, you know, everything has a story. Everything yeah. connects. So it's people, and and I've had really interesting things said to me, Mandy. One one of them, and often asked, if I had to choose between painting, jewelry slash sculpture, what would I choose? Uh, and I say to people, that would be like choosing which arm. You know, if if I had to give up one, which would I want to give up? I can't. Mm. You know, you can't ask a person to give up their right arm. Would you prefer your right arm to your left arm? Well, it's it, it's just it's a part of a whole. Yeah, and it's so, so much a part of you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so that that came first, the jewelry, and then how did you get the idea of the chair? I mean, obviously, it's kind of telling a similar story. How did you get to deciding that you're going to make a piece of furniture and the sculpture? Um, because sometimes I wanted to work bigger. You know, when I, I paint, I generally paint on large surfaces, large canvases. I like that. I like the freedom of working bigger. I like the discipline of working jewellery, but it is small. And I love the intimacy of jewellery. You know, jewellery is the only art form that people wear. You know, mm. they'll attach to themselves and, and will actually physically wear against their skin and may put it on and never take it off. Mm. You know, paintings are wonderful. They take you to places, but you step back from them to view them. You know, mm. the bookmaking that I do, that was the next a step in the intimacy of art in that the person will hold the book and can share it in that way. But jewellery is absolutely you know, it's on people's skin. Mm, it's, it's very, it's very, very intimate. Yeah. So I th that's why I think it's very important to me that it's told well as mm. a story. Mm. So, but then I had this thing of, well, this is working small. I want to do something big. So I need to do some sculpture. And um, that was, the chairs just became part of that. Mm. I don't know that there was a definitive moment where I went, gosh, I'm going to make a chair, mm. you know. It just came. But it was a ladder and I want to spend time with this ladder idea and climbing up. So I'm going to need to sit down to do that. Mm. So therefore the chair. Mm. And how did you work out how to create that and learn the skills for the metalwork and all well, of that? Well, the metals, a lot of the metalwork skills are transferable. Um, but I also have a wonderful husband because <laughs> I did decide at that point, well, am I also going to learn to weld? And then I watched my husband welding and I thought, no, we'll just use him. And that was really interesting to collaborate with your partner mm. who is really, really clever guy in his own right. He builds race cars and, and classic cars and things like that. And incredibly clever. And very engineering-minded and mm. very um, factual and, you know, whereas I'm the creative one and, you know. And I was, wasn't was sure how that would work with, you know, telling your partner and I want you to do this and do that. That might kind of, you know, would that cause conflict? And it didn't at all. He was wonderful, absolutely mm. wonderful. Mm. And he gave me the, some of the engineering requirements I need for a chair to make sure it was the right height and that things would work for a person to be able to sit on it and not have it collapse. Um, and I had full freedom in going, no, I don't want that straight like that. It's got to be curved like this, and this has got to have this, and I want mm. this here and that here, and, and he was just marvellous. And we just took a whole weekend, got all the supplies, and 
went out in the shed and worked together. Mm, which and is so it was really fantastic. fun. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Really and do you actually um, draw to start with, um, you know, your idea and then it's sort of that's the thing that you end up creating or does it is it quite experimental and it evolves as you as you make it? With the jewellery and sculpture, all drawn out, all working drawings and quite factual drawings as well. And you have to because if you're working in silver and gold and particularly 18 karat gold, you 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 can't take um, and just waste it. Mm. You, you can't. It's an expensive material to work with, so you've got to be thoughtful about that. And there's quite a lot of engineering involved in it. Mm. You know, for a ring to hold a stone up, you know, well, it's, it's got to be engineered so that the stone doesn't fall out. And, you know, but also wonderfully sculptural because, you know, you've got to look at it from all angles. So, And as an art jeweller, as opposed to being a traditional jeweller, we take, much more risks than a traditional jewel award and we push boundaries more um but we also get a certain look about our work um so most of my rings will always have an interesting shape in the bottom part of it you know they're not traditionally round mm. and and there's a good design feature to that because it's particularly if i've got something quite heavy on the top it stops it rotating on your finger yeah and things, you know and they're very comfortable aren't they yes they are very comfortable mm. i do like it to you know work well mm. not just look amazing I want it to work well as mm. well and so the sculpture for me is the same so it's probably the sculptures in some ways has a degree of function so the table that I've made is you know we use it that's our dining table mm. you know but we've had the fun of making it together and you know so and I've done lots of coffee tables big lamps and things like that but and sometimes it's quite hard when they sell that's like oh I'd quite like to keep that please yeah. you know <laughs> but then you know you do sell so you have to sometimes yeah which is so great mm. isn't it that mm. you're you know you have all these amazing ideas and you then are collaborating with your partner which is so great and yeah it was magic yeah that was so a lot good. of magic yeah and a lot of the things I do work towards shows um, in the past so for me and that's part of the perhaps a bit of an unusual practice I found it a frustration often working with galleries in that I didn't get to have all the say and I, I think I'm a bossy Scottish person underneath it all that I really like to keep control a little bit or maybe it's because other things in my life I, I can't control so this I can so yeah. I will yeah. you know so quite early on in my practice I decided to do my own show uh, which was really quite scary and quite a lot of hard work, but I did have complete control of the whole process. So, you know, any problems were my fault, but also the um, outcomes were wonderful. Mm. So uh, I started running my own shows. I hired a space, and um, it was a, a gallery at Uxbridge, and it was an old church, um, so it had lighting, and did everything. You know, the organising it, the, the invitations, the, the whole shaboodle. Yep. yep everything and I did have a captured audience in that I had students so you know they bought family and friends and open on a Friday night and closed on a Sunday mm. so it was very intense open on a um, seven o'clock on a Friday and it was very strange Manny. and it was also back then when things were a little easier I think to do that mm. and at the time there was money around for art and very strange experiences of you know, there's a queue for people to come in, and on opening night, you've sold. You know, I've had, and I do big shows, so I'd have sixty or seventy works, and I've sold sixty-five works in the opening night. Wow! You know, yeah, it yeah, was how amazing, uh, terrifying, and and 
then in the next couple of shows even had where I had to have people helping because we did crazy things like sell one piece to two or three people hmm. you know because mm. so much there was so much buzz mm. it was, so you ended up yeah. with commissions afterwards yes although I try not to do commissioned work I would rather, on a personal level, I prefer to do two or three options and if a person likes one of those, take them. Commission works, you've got to get inside their head and find what they want. Mm. In the jewellery, that's a little easier because you can do working drawings and, and talk them through them and and take them on that path. But, you know, painting's a bit more spontaneous. So. Yeah. And, you know, and, and suddenly somebody says to me, oh, I think I'd like a bit more blue in it. You know, there's a voice in the back of my head that's telling them, me bother me how tiresome yeah <laughs> <laughs> time for you to move on yeah you know that is really tricky isn't it yeah. i can see it with an object it possibly would be easier to get your head around commissions yeah I've, certainly i think there's an expectation of normality with that with jewelry i'm not sure that i would feel like that with sculpture i think i would feel a little bit like no you'll you mm. you'll can choose what you like or yeah. you'll get what you're given. Don't tell me that, you know, you want this or that. I, yeah. I think I would struggle a bit with that. Oh, yeah. yeah. But in the jewellery, that, that's more accepted, isn't mm. it? Because, you know, we do that more. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, oh, that's an amazing thing to take on as your own your own exhibition. I can see how amazing that would be. It was amazing. Yeah. Terrifying. Hard work. Yeah. You know, but very rewarding. Mm. And after a number of years, the, the place that I was renting, they quite quickly worked out that um, I was doing financially extremely well from it. So they were like, no, we would like you to continue into the week and we will manage and then we'll start taking commission. And that's a whole other nest egg for artists mm. to talk about, isn't it? Yeah. That's um, a whole so other podcast yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> we won't yeah. go there. No. So um, you, but I do still, on the whole, do my own thing. You do? Yeah. 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 And I do shows for my students as well. Mm. Um, and we'll get on to talking about your so. um, your students and your teaching as well later on. So um, just back to the sculpture and the jewellery, what kind of, I mean, obviously gold, gold and silver you use. Yes. And copper and, and what other materials? N- not much copper. Uh, copper's a pretty dirty metal. I don't really like it that much. I love the way it patinas and I'll use it in my sculpture with the copper houses and it's marvellous. Love it for that. Really love it. And had, had great fun with the, the Croft series, all the little houses. Um put a sheet of copper outside for three years so it developed a great patina mm-hmm. and then made all the houses. And yeah. my lovely husband saying to me, aren't you going to polish them? They look a bit, you know, and it's like, no. No, <laughs> and they're beautiful, those houses. <laughs> and all, all these things that we're talking about, Gay, we'll put on your blog post so, so, so people, people can, can see, see. Yeah. the images. But those houses, I mean, they're on your um, table outside and they're so beautiful. There's, you know, probably nine or ten houses, little houses, and um, just, you know, we talked about them when we looked at yes. them, the composition and how people can play That's with where they I go, love about the spaces it. in oh, between. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I'm just so drawn to that kind of um It's a very shared artwork. You know, yeah. that that's, installation work is wonderful mm. that way. It is really magic. You know, I love the fact, I love watching people when they um, move the houses around and create their own little croft and their own village and and. And and I leave it like that. I don't touch it. I don't put it back to how I want it. You know, for a while that's theirs. Mm. You know, mm. which is so nice. And I I did um, a, years ago some with fibre, and I had all these sticks bound because I quite like binding things with fibre, all bound with fibre. And each stick ended up with a name. And they were in a container on a table, and people would come in and pick them up. And some didn't have names, and they were oh I want to name this one, and they would respond to it. 
And so I started adding more sticks in because of that, with these bounce sticks. And people adding their names on and they would sign on it, write on it. And, you know, so it kind of became theirs, you mm, know. Beautiful. And this, what it meant to them with these different fibres. And um, mm. some were fun and some were outrageous. And, you know, and then um, the whole bundle was bought by somebody who said they had done quite a few of the namings of the different sticks. Yeah. And they, they, they had had to take the piece, so wow. you know, which was wonderful. Yeah, wonderful, it's lovely, and it's know. quite an interactive yes. work, isn't it? Which it is so we. Uh, I know you also use glass, gay sometimes in your jewelry work or sculpture work. So how did you get into that? Um, I had an opportunity to do a glass class. I've always loved glass, loved it, and um, did some uh, glass casting of the lost wax process, which. I did love very much, but I really like blown glass. And blown glass is a massive skill, and you've got to work in very hot temperatures. And as you can see, as I'm flushing up already, (laughs) working in a hot temperature for me was never going to be a good plan. So um, shrunk it down for jewellery and started doing lamp work, so glass beaning, because it's the same principle as blown glass, but just smaller. Mm. And it tied really well into the jewellery. So – and – you know, again, I, I connect across everything. So I, I did some works because um, somebody has talked to me about do I paint flowers and things like that. And I said no and never would paint flowers for many years because that was perceived as being what women should paint. You know, nice women paint nice flowers. Well, I, I didn't. And um, so I did start a little bit of that journey by painting weeds because um, I found them quite interesting. And I have a lovely story of my grandmother, who was a very dour Scottish woman, who, um, when she grew up in Scotland, there was a saying that if, when the gorse bloomed, it was the beginning of the kissing and courting season. And, of course, when she came to New Zealand, it was just blooming all the time. And she even used to give me a slap on the arm and say, now you needn't think, Lassie, you'll be kissing boys all year, <laughs> you know. And I love this thing of the gorse and the kissing. Mm. So it started up this idea of a big gorse paintings, which I did um, – and they were big, it called the kissing seasons. And that led to jewellery, where I said the same story, just used a different language. Mm. So um, I made a piece of gorse-like um, pendant, which I love, and I really wanted to do some blooms on it. But I didn't want to do flowers and silver. You know, it didn't feel like it was going to work. I wanted the colour, so I wanted the glass. So, well, that means I have to learn to do the glass. So I taught myself to do the glass, and uh, that started my love of glass mm. as a medium. How amazing. And you're always and upskilling, aren't you, really? Yeah, I do like to do that. Yeah, which yes. is great. And yeah. so how how do you actually create the sort of miniature blown glass, glass right. pieces? Oh, it's alchemy. Jewelry making is alchemy as well, but glass is real alchemy. So you have a rod of glass, and in this case it's a low soda glass. You heat it into a very hot oxygenated flame. And it's quite strange because you're holding the end of the rod, which is cool, but the end that you've got in the flame can be at thousands of degrees. And if you drop that on your skin, you'll burn to the bone. It's, you know, dangerous stuff. But so much fun. Mm. <laughs> and it ties in with my passion for hammering and acid and fire. You know, it's, you're playing with fire and melting glass. There's, there's wizardry involved, you know. Yeah. And it's really interesting because you have a steel rod that you put a clay onto that's a bead release. And then the, you 
put the gla- molten glass onto it and you're turning, you've got to constantly turn to form up a bead or a right. formal shape. Yeah. And then you go from there. But what people don't realise is you don't see the colour. Because when glass is molten, it's just red. Mm. You know, it's fiery red. And you learn after a while to recognise there's a slight differentiation between some of the glowing reds, you know, of the flame mm. for your different colours. And I love doing landscape beads where I'm layering up and the bead reads as a landscape. So, you know, you have to have a lot of trust in yourself that this is the colour and that's going to go there because I can't see it mm. when it's in a molten form and you're turning, turning, turning. It quite quickly cools, so you can drop it out of the flame and have a look at it and get it back in. But you've got to be a little bit careful because glass will shock. So if you let it cool too quickly, it'll smash into a thousand pieces. If you heat it too quickly, it'll also do that. So you have to anneal glass, which means holding it at a temperature for quite a long time, in the case of a bead, at least 20 minutes, to help the molecules align up so that they don't get stress fractures. So if you don't do that, you might wear that glass bead for a year and then one day it'll explode because really? it got tapped in the, oh my a goodness. certain place. Yes. And how do you keep that temperature constant? Just practice. Just practice. You can have a lot of bead artists and lampwork artists will have a small kiln and I do have a small kiln so you might have keep them in the kiln at that time. Mm. And I remember the first time I used my kiln um, – I had one of those ditzy moments where I got my Fahrenheit and Celsius muddled up and did the wrong one and very excited to go and see my beads the next day and it was just a flat sheet of glass. Oh, no. <laughs> I'd melted them all. So, yeah, we, we all make those kind of mistakes. Yeah, it's part, of the, learning, yeah, it's part of the learning, I guess. Yeah, it's part so of the learning. So would fun. you see that process as experimental or, again, like, like your jewellery, do you have a sort of defined creation that you're trying to achieve? It starts out experimental while you're learning. But then quite quickly for me it becomes quite defined. I want this and I want this and this colours because mm. that's going to go into part of that. Mm. So I'm not really a full lampwork artist where I only will work in glass and when they do things. And I have taught glass um, on to people and some of my students have gone on to do really outstanding work. Um, both John and Francis Hansen were students and they do uh, – they're better, much better than I am now, um, which is wonderful. But um, – I probably dabble in the glass, if I'm honest, but I dabbled enough in the glass and because of the sculptural background and the, and the teaching and things like that, it also has given the opportunity to judge in it and things. And what I say to people with glass is, you know, when I paint, I paint how light looks, you know. When I make jewellery, I try to capture into the sculpture how light or change of atmosphere or mood is. Mm. Glass is light, you know, glass is the one medium where light moves through it and the movement through the medium of light is is what is so remarkable about it. Mm, it's so beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And then so, all that sort of reflective quality oh, is so yeah. gorgeous. And it, it works so beautifully with silver, doesn't it, in that, in that brooch? Oh, absolutely. It's a lovely contrast. A, it is. There's something about that that mm. works really nicely. Mm. And how do you actually add the colour? Is it just a pigment at the beginning? Yes. No, no, the rods come in the colours. So you have chemists who are making, you know, glass makers who right. make the colours up for you. It, there's a lot of limitations in glass that people don't realise, particularly for cast glass, you know, and I do see when I'm judging a, a lot of outstanding practice but not good colour management um, 
And then now and then, it's quite interesting because some of the ones that really have amazing colour management in their glass also paint. So I find that quite interesting mm. that they uh, they understand colour and mm. how colour reads. And what would you say is, is not good colour management? Mud. Muddy, Muddy. colours. Yeah. Mm, and colours that don't um, enhance each other. So... Yeah, turning things to mud, whether it's painting or glass or anything else, when you, you lose that richness. Mm. Um, and it's got nothing to do with whether the colour is bright or not. It's just whether you where you've lost the control and you mm. get muddy areas, flat areas. You know, you look at some works and you think, why is that area flat in there? Well, it's because the colour's gone muddy mm. and something's not working or the cross palettes or something. Mm, so, interesting. Mm. And understanding that, that's what mature artists, that's where we get to. You know, you do understand, you start to understand that. I mean, I don't think there's probably anybody, certainly in New Zealand if and, and the wider world, that's better than Gretchen Albrecht at understanding colour. And I think that she started big movement in understanding the colour and acrylics, mm. you know, and what you could do with them. Mm. So, and if you look at a work and, you know, superbly loose, abstract of work, but exquisite colour, mm. no mud. Yeah, absolutely. No Love much. her work. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, within the sculpture, sculptural sort of part of your practice, obviously the work that you do in fibre is um, very sculptural also. So do you see yes. that as, as part of it? I mean, some of your fibre works are more 2D and then you obviously have the 3D aspect as well. So can you maybe talk about the 3D fibre works and then we can look at the 2D? Yes, I Fibre to me is just a medium for colour and paint and texture. And the sculptural part of it, I got really interested in the birds. I got interested in the slow stitching. And that was after being ill myself and kind of realising that sometimes I needed to just stop and do something quiet. And also that I had to do something I could pick up and put down that was fairly instant. I needed some instant gratification, Mm. you know. So that started my... Uh, slow stitching. So slow stitching is where there is no machine, so no sewing machines or anything like that, everything done by hand. And, you know, I'd hoarded over the years all these bits of fabrics and fibres, all very organised, as you can see in the very studio. Organized. Very, very organised. Very, very organised. I'd like to work all very organised. All sort of labelled and um, categorised. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So I can put my hand to anything. Yeah. So, and I've always had a love of um, hand-embroidered tea cloths and I hate to say doilies but you know you know the words all tea trays you know mm. women did these mm, things I love doilies and you know you I'd go around op shops and there'd be all these amazingly handworked pieces mm. that are going for 50 cents and or are thrown away and I just think there are women that have stitched these and and found peace in it you know and mm. so I couldn't bear that they would just be thrown away so mm. I would collect them and take them. Well, now I've got something to do with them. Yeah. So by going into sculptural forms with the birds and the bears, it allows me to use parts of those fabrics. So a lot of the birds um, are in a gallery at the moment, but they're using all those little bits of hand-stitched, embroidered mm. things. And, I've, you know, it felt a little bit um, sacrilegious cutting them up, but then it's like, no, this is okay. This They'll actually now be in something that is sculpture yeah. that's, permanent that's right you know, and it's almost like they're, it. they're telling another story now i mean all those beautiful crafted objects and and you know fabrics are 
telling a story, story from the are. old days, you Absolutely. know, or somebody's Absolutely. personal story, and then you're kind of reusing and, and re-storytelling yes. in, in a way. And particularly to the fact that they were hand done, Yeah, you know, that this is a creative process. It's in so here. personal, isn't it? Very much so, mm. Very and quite intimate. Again, it's been held, you know, for mm. doing it. So, so then it was like, well, how am I going to do something like this? And I'm a bit fascinated with birds and feathers, um, and there's a story probably for another day about that, about the feathers, but... Um, I saw some designs and I thought I quite like that idea. So then it was, well, how are you going to do it and adapt it and make it? And so that's what I started doing. And it took a few prototypes to work mm. it out. I decided I didn't want to, you know, traditionally you might work over a, a wire form and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have something that while I was stitching that would interfere with the movement of the needle. Um, so it had to have a soft form. So, um, built up from that and till I got what I was happy with. Mm. Then also did the wire work in the legs and the feet because I felt that that would kind of work right. Had a bit of fun whittling the wood. Um, I, and I found the one, I, I used twigs and things like that, but actually what I like to whittle the most is old chopsticks. So yeah, and <laughs> you know, when you go to get the, sushi, yeah, it's like, so yeah, I'll take the chopsticks, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's um, for the beak, isn't for it? For the beaks, yeah. yes. And then you use beads for the eyes. Yes. Yeah, so if you just describe to us um, – what they look like exactly. So each bird has its own um, story and its own shape. I, certainly, never ever two the same. But I'm working on a series at the moment that are a little um, are going to be heading towards a raven. I, I really or a crow. I've got you know the slightly macabre sense of things that I like. Mm. So it's heading towards there. So it was the process of okay, how am I going to get that form and that shape, and then building it up in size. So I started with the starling which is the green and black one, mm. which I just That's love beautiful. him. I do yeah. love him. He's just lovely. And he's about like sort of 15 centimetres high. high. Yeah. Yeah. And can you Stands tell us that beautiful up. story you told me earlier <laughs> at the airport? I love that story. So he's all stitched in black. And he, he they look surprisingly realistic, although mm. that they're not. That you know, they're really just does. made from fabric. Yeah. And we had a very brief window of opportunity with COVID where people could come over from Australia. And my brother hadn't had a chance to come over and see me since I'd been ill. So he was pretty desperate to come over. And I hadn't seen him for about 14 years. So he, he booked a flight. It was a weekend flight. So I went out to the airport to meet him. And I can't sit and not do something. Wherever I go, I've always got something that my hands are doing. I, this is how I am. So I was finishing the stitching off on the starling and I, I had him laying in my hand with his chest up and doing this free stitching. So when I'm stitching, I've got no idea what I'm going to do. I, I just let it happen, mm. you know, so I was in stitching with black thread. And I had this strange experience of, as people were going past me, of them doing this sort of little side jump and little startled movement away. And I thought, What's the matter with me? You know, you start to wonder <laughs> if I've got something on my head or, you know. And then I suddenly realised that people perhaps thought I had this real bird in my head mm. and I was stabbing it with a needle like some macabre woman at, a, <laughs> at an execution or something, you know. <laughs> but and they do, they are quite realistic and, and just cradling yes, the bird cradling in your hand. It. And then yeah. having a needle, I could mm. see them thinking, what is this woman doing? Oh my goodness, that's so and funny. And of course then I just, I found it really funny. Mm. So, um, but, and <laughs> But interestingly, one person did stop. You know, it only takes one. Mm. And I said, oh, no, I'm stitching. I was like, well. And then a couple of other people who had moved off in horror and fear and, you know, the strange woman were listening and you could see them visibly relax. <laughs> you know, okay, 
oh, she's an artist. Okay. Oh, well, that explains everything. Yeah, yeah. Goodness. A so, mad artist yeah. at that. Yeah. So then the step up was the next um, bird, which is all done in the grey. And the fabric, some of the fabric on the feathers of that is actually um, printed with aviation maps and things. So that's uh, that kind of whole play on mm. things like that. Right. I like the stitching. Yeah. And it's so interesting the way you've combined – you know, it's a similar colour palette, but you've got fabrics with different patterns yes. and textures. And then you've used your threading as like a form of mark making. Absolutely. Totally. Which is also connected, connected to your to painting. painting. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about mark making. The thread is a mark making and the needle is just a tool to make that mark. Mm. And I also think that that applies to I I when you look at my paintings and my works, you'll see they're quite um the colours are quite connected. I I don't I always select the palette that I'm going to work with on that painting and when I'm actually physically doing it that's what gets put out I'm you know I have this horror my the the question I hate being asked most is how long did it take you to paint that painting and people love to ask that question and I'll do all this fudgy sidestepping to try to avoid it and I still, even now, feel a bit guilty if something hasn't taken a really long time, mm. you know. And the reality for me is that they don't. I think because I they sit in my head a long time, so I've thought it through. I'm very organised so that when I hit the canvas, you know, I've got my paints out, I know what the palette is, what colours I'm going to be doing it and what mm. tools I'm going to use. I have everything laid out beside me and I just go for it and I stay focused on it and then I surface at the end of the painting. Mm. So... The painting that's on the camp stretcher, you know, is just done in a few hours. And I think it was Picasso, wasn't it, that said yeah, it absolutely. took a lifetime to learn how to do that. You know? Yeah, it took a lifetime to learn to draw like a child. Yes. Yeah. And, and and that's the thing. I mean, it's it's all your – it's your entire practice that is being put yes. into this work. It's not just you doing the actual application of paint. Yeah. So the same thing happens for me in the other – mediums as well so just as in painting where I've select my palette when I'm going to do a bird or a bear I will select my fabrics I will spend quite a long time just selecting what's going to be there what's not going to be there what goes in what goes out that sits there that doesn't that you know until I end up with yeah there it is mm. and then I'll do the same thing with my threads and I use Sue Spargo threads which are just wonderful and I will spend quite a bit of time just going yes they sit in there they don't they compliment mm, where's a little bit of art of vume? and you know mm. and then that's the work everything else gets put away I don't let it clutter my mind mm. I don't get distracted by it you know and mm. I think a lot of us, it's very easy to be distracted. And that's why I think I keep my studio very tidy and very organized so that I'm not distracted from where I'm going. Mm. And the same thing applies in the jewelry. You know, when I'm look, when I'm going to make the piece of jewelry and I've got a beautiful stone, I'll often will actually blue tack the stone to the paper and then draw the design around it so that it's working with the telling of the story of the stone. And the same with the colours of the stones. I'm quite fussy about certain stones I don't think work well with certain metals. And, you know, so uh, I'll use a deep rose red um, gold for an amethyst, for example, um, because they really complement well. Whereas a, a, an icy blue aquamarine just screams to be in silver. Mm, yeah, so, yeah. And that's the painter. That's the painter. That's that's the colour. That's the colour fascination. Mm. So so it's the same with the, the fibres as well. I spend quite a lot of time sorting out the palette and working out what I can do. And then everything else is cleared away. It's all decluttered. And then it's right. 
now I can go for it. Mm, that's really and interesting. Then it, that's when that happens. Yeah, yeah. and um, I guess it gives you that sort of clarity of of your thinking in a way. And how do you actually um, create the form of the bird? So they're all, um, it's just the shape of the pattern pieces. Then I stitch them together and then I stuff the bird um, and I'll have the main body form. What um, do you stuff it with? I like to use, well, it's actually quite difficult because now it, most of the stuffings and things that you can get are a um, man-made synthetic mm. fabric. Um, but if I can, I, I do sometimes use that because it does pack down really tight. But I do also quite like to use roving, which is unspun wool. Um, that can pack quite well. Just depends a little bit on which one's going to do the job mm. best for me. Yeah. So I pack it up really tight, and then things get put onto it. So that's when the the wings and the feathers will be. Sometimes I'll work the layers of the wings up and then attach the wing. But generally at that point, I'm just will cut a feather to shape and fit in a fabric that I like out of what's already selected, which I know these are going to be the wing fabrics, mm. and then I'll stitch them on and, and do you actually draw you know. the bird like you do with your jewelry as well or is it that no, more organic no only the pattern shape yeah but no i let it go with it after, with what's after in front the of main me. form then yeah you can go yeah and sometimes i'll put some on feathers onto it and i'll go oh no, no i'm getting too fussy now you know uh, my mentor said to me a good artist knows when to stop um and i'd add to that a good craftsperson knows how much further you've got to go and so when when you sit in the strange category of where you are an artist but there's a craft aspect to some of your art which is a very difficult place to sit you know it's a it's a you're not really accepted by the art world or the craft world you know you're in this kind of no man's land um but it's quite important to know yes i do have to go further so in the jewelry making yes i do have to get really good finish a really good high quality high end market finish um and also knowing when to stop. So I, for me, it has a really lovely balance because the artist in me tells me when to stop and the craftsman goes, no, that needs a little bit more work mm. to be perfect, um, to be strong. But certainly with the bird sculptures, the artist in me goes, no, you don't need to put all that foo-foo and all these other extra things on, they're not necessary. You know? Yeah, so it's that's, interesting, isn't yeah. it? That's a lovely And balance. that happens very much in sculpture too. You know, the the artist tells you, that's a clean line. You don't need anything else. Whereas a craftsperson, we, we wanted me to fiddle with it and mm. add this and do this and, and, you know, do more of this and do that. You know, no, no, the artist goes, enough. Mm. You know, good art, it, it's really says a lot with a very little, yeah. you know. So that always sits in the back of no when to stop. Yeah. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that sort of fine art Versus crafting and, you know, how yes. those those aspects and, kind of yeah, combine. Yeah. And, I mean, your birds, to me, are art pieces. Oh, they're definitely. You know, yes, they're not. They're, I think they're, I mean, it's not bad to call them crafting, but they. They're sculpture. They're sculpture and they're, yeah. you know, definitely art. Yes. And it's quite fun to have sculpture that's made from something that's a little soft. Mm, mm. You know, often sculpture is a, a, a hard form. Isn't it? You true. know, it's metal or stone yeah. or, yeah. you know, it's a hard form. So it's quite interesting to have something. Mm. And I really love it when I've done sculptural pieces where I've pulled in things that other people have done, you know. So, I, I mean, it's the ultimate recycling. I don't do it from a recycling point of view. It's got nothing to do with that. It's entirely because there's somebody's little bit of story in there that I can pull into 
mine mm. and it feels more intimate. Yeah, so, you know. I love that. And you also, I mean, you've got those beautiful felt, felted bowls or they're almost yes. like vessels made of felt. Yeah. Yes, which they are, are vessels. absolutely stunning. So and again, was, sculpture. Yeah, yes. it's definitely sculpture. Yeah. And that was obviously another another experiment and sort of another another bit of learning for you. Yes, it was. It was another way of dealing with fibre. And, and again, having a control of the process of making the fabric. And I... I think that's why I like doing the birds so much and doing the fibre pieces because I am taking fabrics that have been, in some cases, commercially made, um, but I'm distorting them and changing them into my story. And the felting allowed me to do that even at a more level, you know. Mm. And some of the knitting that I do that's creative knitting, it's the same. But, you know, you're limited with knitting because somebody has decided what the wool is going to look like. I want to make that decision, Mm. (laughs) you know. Mm. So because of that, I thought, right, well, I have to learn to spin. So it was like, so yes, that you know, okay, so taught myself to spin so that I could make the wool that I wanted to do this, you know. Wow. And the felting was a little bit like that as well. I wanted to be, you know, you really come back to it being roving and and this process, a very interesting process, you Mm. know, of doing that. And there's some wonderful um, felt artists out there. I was very fortunate. I did an online course with uh, Fiona Duthie, who it's would be considered one, probably one of the best in the world. And that was very interesting. Um, but we have good local um, felting artists and spinners and things like that who mm. just are doing the most extraordinary works. Really yeah. wonderful. Oh, I just I just love that kind of thing. Yes. Oh, so and, inspirational. And the, the felted vessels, they're physically quite demanding. Felting is physically quite a demanding um, process. I probably would struggle a little bit now with it. Mm. And that's just... Um, you know, chemo knocks you around a bit. So um, the physicality I'd probably find a bit more fatiguing. Mm. But it's very satisfying. And, you know, you're working with soap and hot water and shrinking it and banging it and bashing it. You know, I think I said to you, nothing's better than a Goldilocks. You know, if you're an artist out there and you want to use mark making, grab a Goldilocks. It's marvellous fun. You know, dip it in paint and use it that way or scrape back or scrafito back. It's it's brilliant. It's Mm. It's really good fun. And you do um, lots, you know, you use things like squeegees and... Oh, yes. ...sponges and all (laughs) sorts. Pastry cutters. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, you're you're incredible like that. You use so many different tools and materials. I just... It's just very much what's to hand, what will it do? Yeah. And I, you know... When you were talking with me earlier, you said about you that I was quite an experimental artist, and I kind of thought to myself, oh, I don't think I am. I think I'm probably a bit old and boring, really. And, you know, I thought about it, and I thought, yeah, actually, I think I probably am quite mm. experimental. I hadn't really realised. I don't see that in myself, you know, but yeah. it's very much, no, I want to know how this works, oh, pull definitely. it apart, get it going, and, and turn this and grab this and yeah. try that. And, and you don't seem to have any boundaries or any sort of restrictions no. for yourself. No. You you have an idea and then you think, okay, how I'm am I going to get there? How am I going to do this? Oh, okay, yeah. I need to learn that. I need to go and talk to this person. I need to research yeah. this. It's problem solving. And, yeah, yeah, which is amazing. And it is experimental in the in the respect that you're not sort of just restricted to one area. You're kind of developing Lots of different processes and putting them together almost sometimes. Do you think that that's part of the advantage of being an outside artist? You know, when when you're an outside artist and you haven't gone through a formal training system, you you have to find a way. And because you don't know what the way is, you'll find your way. Mm. Yeah, I I think that can be sort of 
empowering in some ways not having some of that formal training because you haven't sort of been put into a no. box or you're not no. putting yourself into a box you're much more open to oh I'm not sure how to do that how, how am I going how am I going to do that how am I going to do yeah. it yeah. and also when I've got a studio space like this you know I, having a studio space is just the most wonderful thing you know we all talk about men's sheds or you know women's shed or artist sheds any space like that it's just it's marvelous it's freeing but because I work across a lot of disciplines, those things do cross over tool-wise as well. So there's a lot of jewellery tools will end up sneaking into my painting tools. And um, a good example of that would be with the printmaking, for example. So um, I can take a sheet, a thick sheet of perspex, and I'll use the jewellery tools to actually carve into it rather than carving into it with a knife. Mm. Because, you know, we have an overhead drill and I've got different burrs and different cutters that will fit on there. And those burrs, which are traditionally used in jewellery, make beautiful marks in for printmaking and for doing, you know, calligraphic printmaking. So, you know, you get that kind of weird mm. and knitting needles end up as being bangles. And, you know, yeah. and a knitting needle is a marvellous tool for winding jump rings round and, you you know, so things mm. do cross over, and that, that's very much that, I don't know, we always talk about the number eight wire, don't we, with Kiwis, that, you know, and I think women have that a lot. Mm. I think we do adapt, with it, you know, mm. so and I, think I think that's there And just well. having a space where you've got all these materials here that you've collected, yes. and I think living a life where you're collecting things and noticing things and putting yes. stuff aside, and then, you know, over time collecting your sort of tools and, and all the things you need in the different disciplines, then it's kind of all there ready when Absolutely. you when you need it or when you've got yep. a certain idea, which yep. must be really motivating. And also can work the other way for you, you know, that sometimes when you do hit that blank spot, you can come into the space and you start to look around at your space and, you know, there's that stimulation of, you know, look at that wall of fibre and, you know, walls of cane and things that you might want. You know, I, I can go over to the, the jewellery bench and I've, I've got tools there that, oh, I haven't used that for a while, hmm, might pick that up. Mm. You know, oh, that would be quite fun. Oh, whip up a pair of earrings or something, you know? And mm. suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, I'm back again. This is who I am. You know, I can shed things and just be in here. Yeah. You know? And it must be so amazing to have all of that there ready for when you're in that right sort of frame yes. of mind. Then you organized and ready. You connect Absolutely. With, with different parts of Absolutely. of your studio and of your practice and process, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, which is amazing. You know, I, when I teach, and, you know, people come to the studio, which was quite a different thing for me to, when we moved here to have that happen. But I, I've got this lovely thing, that, and it's for me as well, not just the students, but when you cross the threshold of the studio, you shed who you are. You shed all that other baggage. You know, when you step into the studio, I'm, I'm not anyone's mother, I'm not anyone's wife, I'm not anyone's daughter, sister. You know, I, you know, I don't even have to be anyone's friend. I just step in there and for just for that time, it's just me, you know, with all the challenges and the things that go with that, but it is just me. Mm. And I think, you know, I think that's too why when I sign my works, it's always just gay. When, I, when I'm being creative, it, I'm just, it's just gay doing this, you know. It's not anybody else. I'm mm. not Mrs. Webster or not, you know, 
Heather's daughter, or mm. it's just me for a while there. Yeah, so I'm that. quite passionate about sharing that with students too. When yeah. you cross the threshold, you can just let all that go. And in this space, this safe space, and when you have your own studio, it, it is a very safe space. Mm, that's you your know. sort of happy place. Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. And um, that kind of leads us on nicely to very briefly, because we are talking for quite a while, but yes, sorry, I knew that would me. happen. <laughs> <laughs> You're far too interesting to do uh, to cover in one hour. But um, your teaching, I mean, you have a really interesting view of of teaching and and what you're bringing to the community and um, the fact that you bring people to your own studio um, four days a week is quite a huge commitment and that's for the whole day, isn't it? Four whole days. So uh, can you tell us how that works? Um, I think first and foremost, I I want to teach. I think that that good teachers are, we, we can't help it. We will we will do it, and, and and probably annoying in the sense that we'll often end up trying to teach. Um, so for years I did teach at other organisations, so at the Uxbridge Art Centre and at um, MIT I did some moderating and some teaching for them as well. So it was a big shift for me to come to my own studio, but I've always had a rule that with the classes that when you stepped across the threshold, I think it takes great courage for a person to step across an art studio you know people say to me you know we teach children and I have done that and certainly with music and things like that I did for years and choirs um but I think from a visual arts point of view that that children have wonderful opportunities adults don't and I think women finding themselves again creatively have it's very difficult and for men as well because I have guys in my classes too but to actually take the risk and go to an art class, that can be quite hard for people. So I've got this real thing that it should always be a sanctuary. Um, so for years I have been teaching now, and I do love teaching, and I think teaching feeds me. Um, and I'm very generous in my teaching. I do. I, I don't hold anything back. Everything goes. I don't keep anything secret. I think it's really important as a teacher that what I teach is for a person to find their journey and their process and that I'm just there to facilitate the skills. So I always say to people, you know, when you're starting out, um, my job is to teach your hands to do what your heart and head want, Mm. you know, and that's all I'm doing, just teaching your hands. Mm, So it's my job to give you every skill that your hands will do, Yeah, you know, so that you find out who you are. So I don't teach people to paint the way I paint. I don't teach people to do jewellery the way I design jewellery I help them find who they are and I take great pride in the fact that when I have a show and I have got sometimes and in the past when I've had 90 students uh, there's no two works the same and for me uh, that's my little tick in my own little box of Mm. okay yep you're doing fine yeah that's that's my measure yeah absolutely so you're teaching them the skills and techniques yes and allows them to develop how they want to be and you will be supporting them to find their own creativity absolutely i think that's really important so good and on mondays you have a free class in the community yes i do Uh, so tuesdays and fridays are painting classes and wednesdays the jewelry but monday is a a class that's a free-for-all and there's two reasons for that one is because I think it's really important that um, people can do something and not have money inhibitions about that and particularly older people where there's fixed incomes that can be quite difficult um, 
I do have younger people in the classes as well, but um, I think that definitely that there's something harder for uh, older people uh, to be able to do that, and and that it's a anything goes, and that anybody can bring anything to the table. That it's not my job to be the teacher of that class. So we will just explore things together, and there's a the degree of teaching because I do you know push people and introduce ideas, but I also let others speak up and say things and do things and so when I say anything goes we do anything from sometimes we've been painting on silk we dye things we spin we knit we stitch we you know do paperwork (laughs) just whatever comes Mm, to hand somebody goes oh I saw about how we do that and we go oh well give that a go you know it's a give it a go Mm, situation mm. you know and and do people commit for the whole term to that kind of thing or they they commit for life yeah, one, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have a lot of students who've been coming to all the classes for 14, 15 years. Really? Particularly in the jewellery because it's a good workshop as well. You know, there's tools here that mm. make it useful, but I still have painters and stuff. Yeah, and the Monday thing, yes. That, and Monday's interestingly, because, you know, I, I work to a term and I do take two weeks off in the holidays because I need to do that to recharge. But not Mondays. Mondays, I can't bear it. So Mondays will, short of Christmas Day, Mondays still happen. Really? Because it's fun. It's so good. And do you you find that sort of takes away from your own practice, having those days where you're committed? Or does that sort of inspire your own practice? Or or are you actually able to make your own work within these classes? Mm, That's a really good question, Mandy. Really good question. Um, on the Monday, yes, I do my own work. And sometimes it might be quite separate from what others are doing. I'll just facilitate something that they're working on and I'll get on with what I'm doing. And that's part of the package because I do need to have time where I want to stitch or do something. Uh, in the other classes, no, I never do my own work. I, I'm very busy concentrating on others. It's my job to facilitate them. And, you know, that's part of the package. They're paying for those classes, so that's appropriate. I think the teaching, it's a a balance. There's a fine balancing act in there. Because I do like to share everything. You know, I put everything out there, Mandy. I I don't hold anything back. Mm. And I probably put far too much out there. I probably give people too much information about all sorts of things. (laughs) But um, I think that's really important, you know, and – so sometimes you can be having an idea that you're mulling over yourself and before you know, in my case, it's come out my mouth. So sometimes I kind of go, ah, you know, and then, but I'm kind of like, oh, well, that's all right. You know, it'll it'll work or it won't work, mm, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't stress about that. No, There's it's more so important good. things to stress about. Um, I think fatigue for me pays a factor now that, you know, I do get more tired than I used to. So sometimes you know, I don't um, have classes on a Thursday because I like to dedicate that day for me in the studio. And sometimes I'm too fatigued for that. So I've, I've having to learn how mm. to manage that a bit, particularly when, you know, you've, you've been a person that just goes at 90 miles an hour at these things. Yeah. To kind of go, well, you know, probably I can only reach about 70 now. So, mm. you know, I've got but to accept that and make amazing. that change. I mean, you're very busy, you know. really, aren't you? Yeah, I do like. I like it. It's mm. stimulating. Mm. And, you know, over the ho- Christmas holidays when there's a long break, I start to twitch because I do. I miss the teaching. I miss the people. Mm. I, you know, there's a wonderful social and it's a very loving environment. Mm. And, look, you know, I, I, 
I said to you know, with with the cancer and then having chemo, and that whole time, that nine months of chemo, that you know most people you don't work because you're so vulnerable you've got no um, immune system I, I just kept going the whole time people were amazing they understood that people were very cautious and careful with me and I had to keep going because you know only sick people stay in bed mm. and I refused to be sick so I kept teaching the whole time and that you know the whole time I never got anything from anybody mm. and that's why I've said to people with COVID you know you if, if you're surrounded with people who are friends and, and that you love, you know, we'll look out for each other. It'll be okay, you yeah, know? Yeah. And you can trust that people can come back. And with the mandates lifting, you can trust that people who are not vaccinated can come back and it will be okay because they actually do care about you, mm, you know? Yeah, totally. So trust it, you know? Yeah, and we're, we're all working through that process yes, and coming and out the it'll other be end, okay, you know? Hopefully. And so the from that point of view... Initially, I was quite concerned about having people coming into my studio and my workspace, but I learned some rules. I did learn along the way. So one of the things I learned was that if I was working on something that was important for me and it was not dealt with, particularly in the jewellery and things like that, that I put it away. Because people cannot help themselves. They do want to go, oh, what are you making, Gay? You know, and then I would have to kind of come into an explanation which I might not be ready for. Yeah. You know, and or where they may put some input that actually was not what I wanted, what was not going to take me in the direction that I wanted to go in. So I learned you've got to put things away. Yeah. You know, if it's important, put it out of sight. The flip side of that, it's really wonderful too when you finish something and you put it up and somebody comes in and goes, oh, my God, I really love that, Mm. you know. So that was an interesting aspect of it. So, you know, it's all yin and yang, isn't it? There's all a balance in there. How amazing. I mean, it sounds like that the teaching really feeds you sort of emotionally and socially. Absolutely. and, And you've created this beautiful, safe place for so many people and, you know, encourage creativity with people, which is an absolute gift you're giving to these oh, Look, you know what I people. say to people? I had so many people say to me, oh, no, I can't do art. You know, I can't draw a straight line. I said, oh, that's right. I'm useless at drawing a straight line too. You know, it's not about that. Mm. It's just give it a go. Mm. And it's forgiving, mm. you know. And I say to my students, there's, only, there's always more paint, you know. And oh, there's this marvellous invention called gesso, but you're not allowed to use that because really often you get to that point and that's my one sin that they're not allowed to do. You don't just gesso over it because often it's just a tweak here and there and you've got magic. Mm. So it's just more paint. And it's a little bit more difficult when you're working with silver and gold. But you know what? You can turn it into something else. Mm. And worse comes the worst, you melt it down and start again. And that's yeah, exactly. you know, not fun, but you know, how yeah. you can do that. And you're creating that space yeah. where people are comfortable with that. Yeah. And, you know, if it doesn't go right, that's okay. It's not going to be the end of it. This mm. is not a diagnosis of something horrendous that's going to kill you. Yeah. It's just more paint. Yeah. And isn't that fun? Yeah. Isn't it fun that you can just add more paint? Exactly. And it becomes more wonderful. <laughs> and so good that you have that sort of perspective on life that, you know, you've been through some challenging times and and that, you know, the benefit or the flip side of that is living a life where you oh. don't sweat the small stuff. No. And also, well, I do, but I tell myself not to, so yeah. I, I work on that. Mm. You know, we all have to do that. Mm. But I, the very big thing about it that I remind myself all the time and for others out there as well, it's a known scientific fact that if you have big tragedies in your life, that creatively you will be much better afterwards. Now, whether that's because we um, – kind of become more focused about what we really want to do um, or 
they said that it's actually a chemical change in your brain. Um, but certainly that does happen. And I know for a fact it does. I, I look back and after Gordon's accident, definitely creatively I took a big leap. And, you know, after surviving cancer, that I also took a big leap then mm. and my work changed. So, mm. you know, those things do have those bonuses in there. Mm. It's incredible, and, isn't it? Yeah. And, so. you know, that, again, is, is the flip side of, of something negative. Yeah. And and yeah. having the space to be able to actually then explore that. Yes. Um, and develop that creativity and be open to it. And I think that's what you're creating in your classes, that space where people Absolutely. can go and be yeah. supported. A safe place. Yeah. A which safe is place. Really important. And I work quite hard at that in some things too. That So, again, in my own studio, you know, when you work for an organization that organizes classes, there's a dollar factor that's involved in that. You know, that's the business for them. And, the, and that's fine and so anybody can join that group and you know I, I would work quite hard in those situations to make sure that I kept the that community of that class um, interacting well that's as you know as a teacher that's part of what you have to do it's not just about teaching what the hands have to do mm. you have to make it all work so it was very interesting in my own studio situation it gave me a wonderful freedom so it in the business of when you're teaching, you would have to do a workshop or your class and it would be an acrylic painting, abstract acrylic painting. And I'd go, well, I'd quite like to do some lino cuts. Well, no, you can't because it's an abstract acrylic painting. In my studio, I can. So mm. how do we take this idea and then play with it in a lino cut or in a print or in fibre or whatever, you know? So I feel really privileged in that, I have more of an opportunity by teaching through my own studio to help people be artists as as opposed to an abstract acrylic painter. That's right, yeah. So that's really yeah, a that's lovely bonus. That's fundamentally what it's about. And I also have to manage that. So what I learned to do is that I interview people before they join the class. And I suggest that, and I always say, you know, and it is, the classes are always full, um, that they come and spend a day, have a session, have a free session. See if it floats your boat, you know, and see what it's like so they can experience. But I can also then see how they interact with That's people. Right. And if the interaction's going to be good, then, you know, when the space comes up, I can make that available for mm. them. So and it's so that, important, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. For what it's you're really creating, important. That, that needs to happen. Particularly when it's in your own environment. That's this right. is my safe space as well. So, mm. you know, I've got to be careful that they're not going to be people that, mm. that might damage that space mm. I don't mean physically I mean yeah. emotionally or mentally that's such so. a, a great idea and, and that's obviously why it works so well and yeah. how it's been so yeah. positively received and yeah. I think and that is partly too why and it's not at all clicky it's not like that at all it's no. just really supportive positive people and yeah. you know and things do get shared in this space you know that there's there's been tears over losses and things and and great joy as well mm, you know? so imagine. it's all about yeah. experiencing it's that it's really beautiful um, it is. It's a privilege. Yeah. Teaching is a privilege. Art's a privilege. Yeah. But you know. But you're, um, you know, you are creating something so sort of sacred, and that can change people's lives, which is amazing. It's a privilege, mm. and uh, you know, you're you're the right person to be doing it. I I think I take all of that part of it, like I said, quite humbly. That you know, I don't perceive myself as changing other people's lives. I just I'm having fun along the way, and I want people to have joy in that and I want them to be able to have that in their life um, and that is very important to me but 
I don't think about too much about the bigger, you know, if we start taking ourselves too seriously, then it's a bit tedious, isn't it? You know, it's, it's a terrible phrase and I apologise for saying it, but, you know, we can all end up with our heads up our ass, and that's not good. <laughs> you know, you've got to keep a sense of humour in there. Yeah. And first and foremost, I, I just want people to come here and have fun. Mm. And in that process, I'm also having fun. That's right, yeah. It's a win-win. It is. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, one hour and 27 minutes later... <laughs> I told you I'd talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we better wrap it up, I guess. But, you know, I think it's been such an interesting story. Thank you, Gay, for sharing. Oh, and, thank um, you for asking. And your your generosity lovely. with, you know, sharing your whole practice, with taking me into your home and, and showing me around your studio has been um, an absolute joy for me. And I've uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've loved meeting you. And thank I feel you. like I have a new friend. And yeah, I think uh, we could be kindred spirits. Yeah, totally. <laughs> We've got a lot in common, actually. So um, thank you so much for your time, Gay. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure.